I'm Barbara Buchanan, and this is Tales from Weird Scotland. The Point. A story for a winter's night. It can be a wee bit hard to find, the lawyer told him when he collected the keys. But the directions that came with them were straightforward enough, and he was getting used to the single-track roads. He drove north through the village and after a mile took the left fork, climbing upwards from the beach. He missed the sharp turn into the track, but once he spotted, part obscured by ferns, the small hand-painted wooden sign which read Headland, he knew he had arrived. The track was narrow and curved up a gentle slope to a blind summit. As he crested the hill, the house came into sight, nestled in a hollow below. From this vantage point, the churning sea beyond the end of the land on which it stood seemed to go on forever. He parked the car in front of the whitewashed outbuilding which he knew to be a fully functioning artist's studio. The house itself was perfect. The letting agents had had it thoroughly cleaned for him, but that would be for the last time. It was no longer the holiday rental house it had been for so many years. This was his home now. His new life began right here. The house had been left to his mother by her great aunt, a famous artist whose work commanded high prices and was displayed in a number of galleries and private collections at home and abroad. She had spent lavishly on her home to take it from little more than the stone shell which had been in the family for generations to a tasteful mix of traditional Scottish style and modern convenience. When she finally admitted that her failing health necessitated a move to a nursing home, unsentimentally, she put it in the hands of local holiday letting agents. For the few years before her death, the holidaymakers' payments had paid for the upkeep of the house, exposed as it was to the elements, providing employment for local tradespeople. Interest in staying in the home of the famous artist meant it was always fully booked in the summer months. His mother had been surprised when her great-aunt left the house to her and to none of the men in the family. Artist's eccentricity and her vocal determination that women should be financially independent was the received wisdom for the legacy. His mother was a Londoner whose idea of a holiday was a Spanish beach resort, not a remote highland cottage which would take her a day to reach. But she kept the house as an investment, and the income it gave her funded years of the small luxuries she could not otherwise have afforded after her husband's death. It had been a standing joke that the house none of the family visited should stay in the female line, so his mother had left it to his sister in her will. But his sister had emigrated to Australia, and it was of no interest to her. But it was to him. He was no longer young. His last relationship was ancient history, and he hated his job as an art teacher in a London comprehensive school. In return for his share in the proceeds from the sale of their childhood home, his sister transferred the Highland House to him. It had taken its time, but now it was legally his. He had only viewed the property online and seen it in documentaries about his famous relative, but the more he explored the house and the rock-strewn, heather-covered land around it, the more certain he was he had made the right decision. He could paint here. This was a special place. 
The land on the seaward side of the house narrowed and just before the sheer rocky drop to the beach was a stone cairn topped with what he had been told was a small light. Not that small, he thought. It neared eight feet in height. He could see that the light would be visible some way offshore and from the village, which hugged the curved beach a mile distant to the south. The lawyer had impressed upon him that it was a condition of the ownership of the property that the light would be lit in the hours of darkness, as it had been for over 150 years. Not this light, of course, this was recent, installed by the famous artist and linked to the electricity supply and a timer by a shallow buried cable. But a light of some sort to guide the fishing boats to the village harbour and keep them from the jagged rocks beyond the bay. Though modern navigation systems made its purpose redundant, the villagers would not take kindly to it being extinguished. He had no problem in obliging them in this tradition. After all, it more or less looked after itself. In the following weeks, he came to love the rugged landscape and the ever-changing sea. It inspired him. He was painting with energy and passion for the first time in years. He had a settled routine, a brisk walk down the footpath to the beach and along it to the village shop first thing for daily essentials and a blether. Then back to the studio to paint before the daylight faded, as it did ever earlier each day towards the winter solstice. He did not have the beach to himself that morning. The little dog ran out of the dense sea mist and circled him, yapping excitedly. The woman in a yellow rain jacket and fisherman's wellies wasn't far behind. He didn't recognise her, but she knew who he was. No surprise. He had discovered there was no anonymity in this part of the world. She had an open, friendly face, a mop of unruly black hair and a distinct Glasgow accent. She was, she said, a history doctorate student researching local fishing families as part of a larger university project on the Highland Clearances. She was staying in a caravan on one of the nearby crofts until the new year to experience the annual Christmas and Hogmanay festivities. His great-great-aunt was one of her favourite artists. Would he mind if she came to visit her studio? Of course he wouldn't mind and bring the dog, why not? He had taken to them both. Was it a date? Or just a visit. He couldn't tell, he didn't mind, but he was looking forward to seeing her again. She knocked on the door just after six o'clock and he made them both coffee before they crossed to the studio. He explained how his relative had worked, her methods and inspirations. As she listened, she closely examined the completed canvases he had stacked against the wall. She was impressed. He had truly captured the raw beauty of the point. When he looked bemused, she said that headland had originally been called the point because the land seemed to point out to the sea. The name had been changed by his relative. Her research was going well. The Kirk Minister's journal from the 1860s had been a real find hidden away in the old Kirk record for years, gathering dust. Did he know the story of the first of his family to live here? No. Would he like to? Yes, please. She sat down in one of two wicker chairs and the dog jumped onto her lap. As she spoke, he picked up his sketch pad and began to draw. The first of his family to own the point was the godson of the local absentee landlord who owned the whole estate. The lad had gone off the rails as a student in Edinburgh, too fond of the Uskabeha, the water of life, the good Scotch whisky. 
His godfather wanted to get him away from the temptations of the city, give him a fresh start. So he gave him the job of land agent. The godson had responsibility for collecting the rents from the tenants in the village and tending to any related matters. In return, he received a small stipend and the land and stone-built cottage in the point was legally transferred to him. All this on condition he ensured that the light, which the landlord had had built on the edge of the point some time before, was always lit in the hours of darkness. The landlord had made a solemn promise to the villagers that it would be lit to guide the fishing boats which set out to sea, even in the harshest conditions of winter. He did a man to do it, but now he passed this responsibility to his godson. It would all be the making of him. But his godson was not responsible. Not at all. Before long, he was spending too much time in the village tavern and the light was often left unlit. It was unlit on that Christmas Eve, the night of the great storm. For want of the light, a fishing boat was dashed onto the rocks beyond the bay. The crew of four lost in the angry waters, their bodies swept out to sea. He had the sense to keep to the house. He would not be welcome in the village. On the first day of the new year, four widows and the fatherless children made their way along the beach through a freezing sea fog to the house. He did not see or hear them approach until their faces appeared at the window. Shocked, but fortified with whiskey, he demanded to know why they had come. Our men are lost. We have no money to live and feed our children. You can, in recompense for the want of the light, give us work, set aside our rents. He was astounded by their audacity. He would, he said, do one thing only. He would employ one of them as his housekeeper. He looked at the four in turn. He did not know their names, nor did he care. One was old and bent in stature. Two had children clinging to their skirts. The fourth was young, dark-haired and comely. She stared at her feet. She would do. He raised his arm and pointed at her. No respect, none at all. A good man would have chosen a woman with children to feed or find work for all four. But he was not a good man. Within weeks, the young widow with no children who had become his housekeeper was carrying his child, not of her will. She sought solace of the other widows and together they went to the Kirk Minister. And the Kirk Minister, who cared for his flock, helped her. She needed to leave before her shame was known to the whole village. He found her domestic work at the home of his friends in Glasgow. They had sympathy for her plight and when her time came, would take her baby to raise as their own. She would be her own child's nursemaid. She could ask for no more, although leaving her home was a sore wrench. The cart taking her and her few belongings from the village departed into the unquiet night as an early spring storm blew in. When the cart was out of sight, the last three widows made their way along the beach to the house through the howling gale. The light was not lit. She's gone, they told him. Should I care, he said. Now which one of you will take her place? The old woman stepped forward. She raised her arm and pointed at him. In memory of our men who died, we curse you and the men of your family who follow after you to the end of time. 
If the light is not lit by any such man, he will not see the next day dawn. And this is our solemn vow. His laughter was borne away in the wind. He did not understand the power of her words. The next morning, his body was found on the shore at the foot of the steep rocks before the light, drifting back and forth in the waves. The light above him was lit. His godfather agreed he must have been caught by a powerful gust of wind and a storm whilst tending to the light. A terrible accident. He had the young man buried in the village kirkyard. As was the custom of those days, no women attended the graveside, but the three widows looked on from the hill above. No new land agent was appointed. The old order returned. The landlord was fair to the three widows. The point passed to the young man's sister, but no one came to live there. All this was recorded in the minister's journal, the widows having told him of their visit to the point and asked God's forgiveness for the laying of the curse. There was no mention of how the young man met his end. All quite fascinating, don't you think? You'll need to mind that curse, she said, her expression mock serious. Just as well the light's electric and on a timer now, he replied. They both laughed. She had a little more to tell him. The point remained unoccupied for decades. The house became uninhabitable. The villagers tended the light. Then one day, the famous artist, its new owner, arrived to view her inheritance. She would put down roots here. The place inspired her. She stayed at the manse for a time as a guest of the minister, and his wife showed her the old journal. Even for the times in which he lived, she found the actions of her ancestor despicable. She determined to make restitution in any way she could. She hired local tradesmen to renovate and extend the house and built her art studio. Local craftsmen built bespoke furniture and artist easels under her direction. She chose a local woman as her housekeeper and paid her well. She had a new light installed and through the years upgraded it whenever a better system became available. It was never left unlit. And she changed the name of her property from the point to headland. She did not want to hear the word point again. It made her shudder. The extraordinary paintings she created in her new studio became collectively known as Headland Dreamings. It was rare for any artist, especially a woman, to be so highly thought of in her own lifetime. Not just for her work, but for her character. A fine woman, he said. I wish I'd known her. I'm beginning to wonder if she left the house to my mother to keep the men of the family safe from the widow's curse. The student ran her hand through her hair, tilted her head and shrugged. Through the telling of the story he had continued to sketch, she asked to see it. It was a remarkable likeness. He wondered if he might try to paint it as a portrait. She didn't know what to say. She stood up and placed the dog on the floor. It's late. I must be going. And they said good night. See you again. So lost in thoughts of the tale she had told and the portrait he planned to paint, it didn't occur to him to ask how she was getting back to the caravan. It was Christmas Eve, and he would spend the evening at the village pub and eat his Christmas lunch there too the next day. But he was running low on wood for the log burner in the sitting room. He'd chop a few logs before he went out. He was beginning to get the hang of it, but was still a bit wayward with the axe. 
A wild swing missed the log entirely and the axe blade lodged itself to half its length in the ground to the side of the chopping block. It was firmly wedged and took some strength to pull out. And then he saw the cable for the light in the hole. It was sheared halfway through. He tried everything to repair the connection, but it was going to need an electrician. He'd have a word in the pub to see if anyone could come to fix it as soon as the holiday was passed. He felt uncomfortable about leaving the light unlit, but had no alternative. As for the curse, all a load of hocus-pocus nonsense. He passed a convivial evening in the pub. Someone had played the fiddle and there had been a bit of a sing-song. He was disappointed that the student hadn't come along. He'd been drinking orange juice as he'd come by car and he was glad to be stone-cold sober driving home as a freezing sea fog had settled and visibility was poor. At the house it seemed wrong to look out into the night and not see the light shining. The fog was swirling now. Almost a living thing. Dear God, was someone coming towards the window? The hair on the back of his neck stood on end. To his relief, he recognised the yellow rain jacket of the student. She knocked on the glass pane and beckoned him outside. It was only then that he knew that she was not alone. Behind her were three more women, present but somehow indistinct. Their skirts long and heavy with moisture from the fog, plaid shawls covering their heads and hugged tight to their chests. He could not see their faces, just shifting fog. No, 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 was all he could think. I did try to warn you, she said, quite matter of fact. I told you why the light must always be lit. I gave you a chance. That part of me wanted to save you. But this part cannot. What? He could hardly get the word out or take his eyes from the others. You do see now, you do understand. And of course, he did. The first owner of the point, that foolish, drunken, careless, evil young man was within each of them. She came from his assault on the young widow who moved to Glasgow and he from the young man's sister who inherited this beautiful, benighted place. Family, he thought. He almost laughed. I tried to fix the light. I know you did, I know, but it doesn't matter. It makes no difference, none at all. It's done. It cannot be undone. And as she spoke, one of the women stepped forward into the light from the window and became solid, real part of this world, though he knew she was of the next. He could see the planes of her face, her hollowed cheeks, the furrows of her forehead, the lines creased beside her eyes. It was an old face, quite striking in its way, quite beautiful. He would like to paint a portrait of such a face. He stood straight and looked deep into her hooded eyes. She raised her arm and pointed at him.
When he didn't turn up at the pub for Christmas lunch or answer his phone, a couple of the men went to look for him. His body lay at the foot of the steep rocks before the light, drifting back and forth in the waves. They called the police. His sister flew in from Sydney as soon as she heard her brother had died. He had loved his new life and he was painting better than ever before. He had been sober and in good spirits in the pub on Christmas Eve. He must have decided to have one last try to get the light to work and lost his footing in the fog. It was judged an accidental death. No foul play suspected. He was buried in the village kirkyard. His sister was sure he would have wanted that. She invited the villagers up to the house for the wake and to see his paintings in the studio. How wonderful they are, they said. He had the makings of a great artist. What a waste. But what got them talking was the sketch of the young woman with the dog on her lap. She was a spitting image, they agreed, of a history student who'd stayed the winter a few years before, researching for some project they couldn't remember much about. What they did remember, and always would, was that she left a frying pan on the heat in the little stove in her caravan when she popped to the village shop. When she returned, the caravan was well alight and smoke was belching out of the half-open windows. The crofter had a water hose trained on it and the fire brigade was on the way, but he couldn't stop her dashing past him and into the blaze, her wee dog at her heels. All to rescue some research papers and an old minister's journal she got very excited about. Something to do with her having discovered evidence that confirmed her research of her own family tree? She thought she had links to the village, but again, no one knew the whole story. Smoke inhalation killed them both. So very sad. And for no good reason, all the papers and the old journal were burnt to a cinder. Who had modelled for the sketch was a mystery, but don't they say everyone has a doppelganger? And West Highland Terriers are common enough, goodness knows. Strange how things work out, she thought as she settled into her seat on the flight back to Sydney. She once again owned the house she had transferred to her brother. She had put it back in the hands of the letting agents to rent to holidaymakers until she decided what to do with it. She'd had the cable to the light fixed while she was there. It had taken the electrician no time at all to get it up and running again. Her mind began to turn to thoughts of home. She had been worried for some time that her son was going off the rails. All he could think about was surfing. And she had to admit he was talented, making a name for himself, winning competitions. It was the crowd he'd taken up with, hard drinking, and she worried hard drug taking too, that was giving her sleepless nights. He had an ambition to run a surfing school. But it didn't have to be in Australia, did it? There wasn't a surfing beach in the world he didn't know about. He had told her the beach on the other side of headland from the village was ideal for the sport. High rolling waves with no rocks to break their passage. The studio would be perfect for storing surfboards and wetsuits, even space for a small changing room. She would call the lawyers when she got home transfer the house and land to her son, make it legally his. 
A bit of responsibility was what he needed. This new venture would be the making of him. She smiled, switched off the overhead cabin light and settled down to sleep. That was The Point, a story written and told by Barbara Buchanan. The Point was recorded, produced and radiophonically designed by me, Nick Cole Hamilton. You may have noticed that this episode of Tales from Weird Scotland differs from others in that it is a work of fiction. As a little experiment, we decided to write our own weird stories for the end of the year, so expect one or two more episodes of this ilk before we return to exploring Scotland's weird past, present and futures in the new year. In the interim, be sure to check out our Twitter account. You can find us as at TalesWeird. Weird spelled W-Y-R-D. And be sure to recommend the podcast to any like-minded weirdos you know. This is a You Better Run Media production. Join us again soon for more Tales from Weird Scotland. <laughs>